This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Faithfully Trusting God at Times of Trial. In the first half, Dallin R. Moody shares his address, What Happens When Life Gets One Degree Colder? Then in the second half, Blake E. Peterson speaks on, Do We Really Believe? I realize in my role as an associate athletic director in the athletic department that it's appropriate for me to talk about our sports teams and their achievements. I'd first like to congratulate Coach Jeff Judkins and the women's basketball team for their great win in the conference championship game yesterday in the West Coast Conference. Good job to the players and coaches. Good job to those players and coaches for earning a bid in the NCAA tournament later this month. I'd also like to thank all of our athletic teams for the hard work that they put in, the student-athletes, the coaches, and other athletic personnel to represent this university so well. I'd now like to spend a few minutes talking about our plans for conference realignment and to discuss some of our upcoming football games we hope to announce soon. Not really. (laughs) That's not true at all. It's just that they don't often make the finance guy go in front of an audience, and so I just was trying to do my best to keep it that way. Anyway, as a a brand new missionary in England, I was assigned to the southern coast for my first area. One Sunday afternoon, my companion and I decided to go tracting in the small town of Sandwich, located just a few miles north of the White Cliffs of Dover. After a few hours knocking on doors, feeling like we must have talked to every living person in the place, and without any success at all, we sat dejectedly down on a nearby bench. Although it was summertime, as sometimes happens in England, it was a rather cold and damp day. Feeling downcast due to the lack of response in our efforts to share the gospel, my companion tried to lighten the mood by remarking, It's okay, Elder. It could be worse. It could be one degree colder right now. His comment was well received and hit home. Life really wasn't bad. We were in a beautiful country. We had the gospel. We were missionaries on the Lord's errand. In fact, I had more blessings than problems. I felt much better knocking on doors the rest of the afternoon armed with an enlightened attitude and a purer perspective, although I was still damp, still cold, and still wish someone would listen. As insightful and perceptive as was my companion's point, that it could be worse, it could be one degree colder, what happens when it does get one degree colder? Or for that matter, what happens when, metaphorically speaking, it gets 10 or even 50 degrees colder? What happens when the pressure is on, the crowd is watching, and the game is on the line? In a college environment, what do you do when the homework is grueling, the exams are punishing, the roommates are exasperating, and that longed-for eternal companion is not materializing? (laughs) Or after college, what do you do if you don't land a job, you get laid off, you have stress in your marriage, you have poor health, or your teenagers don't listen? In those times of trial, despair, fear, and worry, I say that is the time when the stage is best set for God to show forth His power. Indeed, it is often in the most dire of circumstances that God's arm is revealed most miraculously. Miracles require faith and generally some amount of courage and hope on our part, as well as trust that God will always do His part. We must also remember that God's ways are not our ways. His response to a given situation might be different than what we want to have happen. In addition, the timing of His response could vary greatly from our expectation of timing. Yet in all cases, God's involvement in our lives is carefully crafted to bring about the greatest good. 
for he doeth not anything save it be for the benefit of the world. Several years ago, I gave a lesson in my elders' quorum based on the first presidency message in the July 2004 Enzyme, written by President Thomas S. Monson, entitled Miracles of Faith. One part of that lesson particularly struck me because of the uniqueness of a principle that I had not previously considered, which afterwards became even more personally poignant because of the imminent events that were about to occur in our home. From time to time, the Lord puts certain truths into our hearts that affect our future destiny. We may not fully understand His reason for teaching us these principles at these particular times. Instead, it is often once we have passed through the ensuing experiences that clarity comes. We can then look back through life's lenses and more fully see that God does prepare a way for us to accomplish what He commandeth. Part of President Monson's message that I shared with my elders quorum read, Mothers and fathers who anxiously await the arrival of a precious child sometimes learn that all is not well with this tiny infant. A missing limb, sightless eyes, a damaged brain greets the parents, leaving them baffled, filled with sorrow and reaching out for hope. There follows the inevitable blaming of oneself, the condemnation of a careless action, and the perennial questions. Why such a tragedy in our lives? How did this happen? Where was God? Where was a protecting angel? If, why, where, how, those recurring words do not bring back the lost son, the perfect body, the plans of parents, or the dreams of youth. Self-pity, personal withdrawal, or deep despair will not bring the peace, the assurance, or help which are needed. Rather, we must go forward, look upward, move onward, and rise heavenward. It is imperative that we recognize that whatever has happened to us has happened to others. They have coped, and so must we. We are not alone. Heavenly Father's help is near. What struck me was that the absence of the miracle could actually be a miracle in and of itself. The premise being that as God's ways and thoughts are higher than man's, at times the Lord may choose to provide a miracle counterintuitive to what we may want, knowing full well His end purpose. And because of the absence of the miracle fixed in our minds, He's better able to help us grow and thus become happier than we ever could have been had we received the desired miracle for which we had prayed. At the time, I naively thought that my impression of that principle was because I had given a blessing to the daughter of a family I home-taught, hoping that a dramatic recovery would spark the family back into activity. When the little girl ended up in the hospital that same day, I thought, well, the absence of the miracle would somehow bless their life more than if she had been miraculously healed. However, little did I suspect then the extraordinary experience amongst the challenges that the Lord was already engineering. About a month later, we went to an ultrasound appointment to see whether my expectant wife, April, was having a boy or a girl. We learned that we were having our third son. We also learned that there were severe physical complications afflicting his body. He was missing large portions of his brain, his skull wasn't properly shaped, and the doctors weren't even sure if he would survive till delivery. During the ensuing weeks, it seemed that every time we received additional information, it was bad news. I still remember sitting in the Brewster building just across from the Wilkinson Center when my wife called to tell me the latest update, that our son wouldn't have a right eye. Thinking back to my mission companion, it certainly felt like it was worse than one degree colder. With faith, and in order to pray more specifically and effectively for our unborn son, we decided on his name early. In this case, we chose the name of Caleb after the Old Testament Israelites, who was a companion to Moses and Joshua 
and was noted for his fearlessness in the face of overwhelming odds. Caleb survived his birth, though it quickly became apparent that he would be very much like a newborn baby throughout his entire life. He would never walk, he would never talk, he would never feed himself, or be able to so much as hold his head up on his own. When asked how long we might expect him to live, the doctor replied, Just take him home and never bring him back to the hospital. We can't do anything more for him. You have a few weeks to a few months. Outside chance of a year, possibly two. I remember being terrified as we walked out of the hospital with our little boy to take him home. The number of machines and medical equipment we needed to sustain his life was overwhelming. The possibility of losing him was a constant fear. Simply feeding him required an extraordinary effort, as he needed to eat every three hours. The process to eat took one hour to complete. This involved waking up all throughout the night. Start the pump, sleep for an hour, stop the pump, sleep for two hours, start the pump again, sleep for another hour, and so on. We wondered how we'd keep ourselves alive, let alone our fragile son. Thankfully, the Lord blessed us with many miracles in what might have looked like a hopeless situation. Angels in the form of ward members, family, friends, and medical personnel came to our aid. We literally had meals brought in for three months. We had a competent and caring nurse, a doctor who made house calls, and family and neighbors that prayed mightily in our behalf. We could feel heaven's hand upon us. I felt angels walked our hallways and sat in Caleb's room. Our three-year-old son sometimes told us that he saw Jesus peeking in our windows. In Caleb's baby blessing, I promised him that he had completed his task on earth by being born and that he could now rest for a time. But this wasn't the plan for Caleb and his mother. In some kind of pact with heaven that I have yet to fully understand, Caleb and April bargained with heaven to do a greater work. God had matched them up perfectly. Caleb, with his fearlessness in the face of overwhelming odds, and April, with her mother's love and daring optimism. April purposefully chose hope and trust in the Lord. To her core, she is happy and optimistic. With God's help, she took what could have been a terrifying trial and reshaped it. She took a corner of heaven and pulled it right down into our home and opened it up for all to enjoy. Every day became a celebration with Caleb. She made him a birthday cake after his first week, cookies after his second, and cupcakes for his third week, and so on. She celebrated everything about Caleb, for every day was truly a once-in-a-lifetime experience for the boy who was sent home without hope. In what might have looked like a burdensome task to others, caring for Caleb became a privilege. Though his body was misshapen and broken, his spirit was whole, noble, and great. Being in his presence was healing and heavenly. I love my wife and thank her, Caleb, and Heavenly Father for making the time with Caleb not only possible but powerful. It was indeed heaven on earth. Even missing his eye was a blessing. It became his distinctive feature. People were drawn to him, especially children. They would often ask, where is his eye? What happened to him? I would usually say something about Caleb being a pirate or that a bear had eaten his eye. But my wife would explain that in our family, a wink meant, I love you. Before Caleb was born, we told our boys that he would only have one of his eyes. Of course, they were concerned for their brother. Don't worry, she would say. He will just wink at us every day. Caleb was never able to tell us that he loves us with words, but every day he told us with his wink. His little wink was a daily message of love from heaven. He brought the love of God and the light of Christ into the lives of all who knew him. His winking eye was a sweet reminder of his deep love for all of us. 
Hope and courage have always characterized the righteous. Ever the optimist, Joseph Smith, was once quoted as saying, I should never get discouraged whatever difficulties should surround me. If I was sunk in the lowest pit of Nova Scotia and all the Rocky Mountains piled on top of me, I ought not to be discouraged, but hang on, exercise faith, and keep up good courage, and I should come out on the top of the heap. It was this type of faithful fortitude that saved the Nephites from the decree of death declared by the unbelievers if the sign of Christ's birth did not come. But it came the very night that Nephi prayed. Likewise, a measure of firm faith and trust in God preceded the parting of the Red Sea, saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from a fiery furnace, and helped David defeat a giant. However, not all miracles deliver. Sometimes, according to God's purposes, miracles are seemingly withheld in order for His greater designs to develop. After all, Abinadi was burned at the stake, the Mormons were driven out of Jackson County, and Joseph Smith was martyred at Carthage Jail. Or, on a less important scale but still significant to those involved, lost puppies may not be found, testing center prayers may not be immediately answered, and church basketball games may not be played with good sportsmanship, in spite of prayers offered otherwise. But that doesn't mean that God is absent, or that He doesn't care, or hasn't provided a miracle. I say again that it is at those times when it is 10 degrees colder that God is involved. He does care and is performing His work. We must remember that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are His ways higher than our ways and His thoughts than our thoughts. Just imagine what would happen if miracles were left up to us. In my arena of athletics, it would probably go something like this. Because the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the true church, and BYU is sponsored by the True Church, therefore it's the Lord's University. And because the BYU sports teams are flagships for the university, therefore it makes sense that no BYU team should ever lose. That would be obvious evidence that the church were true. What a blessing this would be to the growth of the church. I can imagine the discussions between a missionary and an investigator. Brother Jones, as you know, the BYU football team has never lost. The basketball team has won every national title, and all of their golfers get a hole-in-one on every stroke. Don't you think it's about time you join the church? (laughs) Obviously, the Lord does not work this way. A plan where supposedly everything went right and so nobody would be lost was already proposed and rejected. The plan of salvation, on the other hand, allows for opposition in all things, sadness and sweetness, wrongdoing and repentance, trial and testimony. With so much opposition in our lives at times, it seems like God chooses to work through underdogs. Take Gideon of the Old Testament, for example. Israel was in bondage to the Midianites, so God called Gideon to deliver them, and he raised an army of 32,000 men. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand has saved me. God asked Gideon to reduce his army to 10,000, which was still too many. God then asked him to reduce his force even further, to just 300 men to go against a foe who were like grasshoppers for multitude, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seaside for multitude. But with the help of God and against all odds, Gideon and those 300 men bested the Midianites and their tens of thousands. God is clearly not limited by the same constraints that affect our mortal way. Left on their own, Gideon and his 300 would have had little chance for victory. Gideon was not alone, nor is he the only instance of God using small and simple means to bring about his great and eternal purposes. 
God took Enoch, a lad slow of speech, and walked with him. And so great was the faith of Enoch that he led the people of God, and he spake the word of the Lord, and the earth trembled, and the mountains fled, even according to his command. And the rivers of water were turned from out of their course, and all nations feared greatly. So powerful was the word of Enoch, and so great was the power of the language which God had given him. God also took former Egyptian slaves and molded them into the mighty Israelite nation. He turned a fisherman into a chief apostle, and he shaped a plowboy into a prophet. The Lord himself came in the most humble of circumstances, a babe in a manger, born in a carpenter's family, who had become Lord of lords, King of kings, and Savior of worlds without end. Such miraculous transformations come as a result of trust in God's plan. One night, for family scripture study, we read the New Testament account of the man which was blind from his birth. This caused his disciples to ask him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Seeing the obvious parallel in our own home, our young sons asked why Caleb was born blind. In the next verse, the Lord provided our response. Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Then Jesus healed the man so that he could see. Caught up a bit in the grandeur of the story, our boys asked whether I could heal Caleb. I stammered some kind of response that I didn't feel it was the Lord's will for Caleb to be healed. I added that often the healings recorded in the scriptures were performed by Jesus, prophets and apostles, very righteous men commissioned by God to perform miracles for specific purposes of blessing the lives of those involved and increasing the faith of those who would eventually read these stories. Not to be put off, and possibly sensing my apprehensive response, my boys faithfully concluded that it was time to appeal to a higher authority. It so happened that we were going to the church administration building later that week to attend the setting apart of my dad as a mission president by one of the brethren. Knowing that we would be meeting an apostle, my sons requested that I ask him to heal Caleb. Talk about being put between a rock and a hard place. How could I sustain their faith without selfishly imposing on an apostle? I compromised with my boys by telling them that I would not ask for a blessing on Caleb, but that we would leave it in the hands of the Lord. It was a wonderful occasion to be with my dad as he was set apart and to be in the presence of one of the Lord's special witnesses. He wasn't inspired to heal Caleb. As we walked out of his office, he stopped at Caleb's stroller and bent down and kissed him. He told him three times that he loved him. He then shook my hand, hugged my wife, and while whispering in her ear, said, I am so proud of you. In the sight of God, Caleb did not need healing. Instead, it was me that left that office peacefully whole. Trusting in God means that we also trust in his timing. The man in the New Testament story was blind from birth. I'm not sure how old he was, but that miracle was years in the waiting. And then one day, the master came along and healed him. In his own time and in his own way, God will respond. As an example of the Lord's timing in my life, I had been in, at my new job in the BYU Athletic Department for about three weeks when I had to go down to Las Vegas for a business meeting as part of the conference basketball tournament. I woke up very early in the morning to make the long drive down to be in time for my 12 o'clock meeting. My wife and I had prayed fervently that I would make it safely. Caleb had been in the hospital for a few weeks and we had been pulling many late nights to be with him. Despite every precaution and physical effort that I could make, 
Just outside of St. George, I fell asleep in the blink of an eye while driving full speed down the freeway. I woke up to find myself heading down the hill into the median dividing the highway, one set of tires on the pavement and the other in the weeds and the gravel. I quickly spun the wheel to take me back on the road, but this only caused me to do a 180-degree turn across the lanes of traffic. Thankfully, there were no other cars near me, and once I got to the far right-hand side of the road, I had the fleeting thought that I could pull it off, that I would be able to stop the car on the right shoulder, but not so. I think the car was still traveling about 60 to 70 miles an hour when I slammed into the sand and the sagebrush, flipping the car over. Eventually, the car came to an abrupt stop, with me hanging upside down by my seatbelt. I undid the catch and fell to the floor, which was now the roof of the car. It was impossible to open any of the doors of the car because it had become fairly flattened to the ground. I climbed through a window since all the glass in the vehicle had shattered. Besides a bruised and embarrassed ego, I was completely unharmed. The only cut I had was a small slice of my hand where a piece of glass had stuck me when I released myself from the seatbelt and fell to the ground. After being checked out by the police, who also issued me a ticket, my sweet grandmother, who lived in St. George, somehow let me borrow her car so that I could finish my trip to Las Vegas. I walked into my meeting about 15 minutes late. The hard part was telling my boss, Tom Homo, who was also at the basketball tournament, that I had destroyed a university vehicle during my first month on the job. To make a bad situation worse, my seat at the basketball game following the meeting happened to be directly in front of President Samuelson. I spent the whole of that game pulling glass out of my hair as inconspicuously as possible. In my mind, the timing of that wreck in my life couldn't have been worse. It was life turning one degree colder. I was trying to make a good first impression at my job. My wife and I were doing our best to take care of a sick child, and we had prayed for safety. But the Lord's timing and purpose were made clear over the following days and months. Tom is a great boss, and he's never held the accidents and the loss of the car against me. The university eventually replaced the car, but thankfully didn't have to replace me because I was still alive. The Lord had preserved me from what should have been a fatal accident. Having come so close to death helped me more fully appreciate my life and all the people around me. I especially enjoyed the time spent with Caleb late at night when I would wake up to take care of him, because not only did it mean I was still alive, but Caleb was too. There were times when I thought that Caleb would live a long time. He had so often battled sicknesses and surgeries, illnesses and infections. He had been to the hospital many times, but always came back to us. We loved having him in our home. Caleb could have quickly returned to heaven, but instead brought heaven to us for seven years. Twenty-five days ago, in the timing of the Lord, Caleb slipped peacefully away, being held in the arms of his mother and surrounded by family. He had spent a courageous day fighting with his might against a vicious infection brought on by pneumonia. The wonderful doctors, nurses, and other medical personnel at Primary Children's Medical Center had done all they professionally could to keep Caleb alive, but his body was simply too worn out. I have heroes in my life, Joseph Smith, Captain Moroni, Ammon, and others. On that day, my wife was my hero. She bravely and tenderly leaned down to hug Caleb. She whispered in his ear, I love you, Caleb. I am so proud of you. 
If your body is too tired, it's okay. You can go back. You can return to your Heavenly Father. For over seven years, her love and God's will had allowed Caleb to be a significant part of our earthly experience. But in the very moment when it was needed, her heart changed. She could let him go. She trusted God because she knew God. She knew that God could understand her personally in a way that few others could. For God had also lost a son. And through the atonement of that son, God can do miracles. He can forgive a sinner. He can save a lost soul. And he can heal a broken heart. With God, nothing is impossible, especially when life is hard and it is 10 degrees colder outside. For all things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. God provides the plan, and we contribute the faith and courage. We trust in his timing and in his ways to achieve his purposes, even when, and probably especially when, such purposes may be unclear from our perspective. At a state conference not too long ago, I had an interview with a visiting authority. He learned about Caleb as part of our discussion, acknowledging the hard work it took to care for Caleb. I thought he would then encourage me to keep it up and faithfully persevere in the service and sacrifice I was providing. Instead, his next four words entirely transformed my relationship with Caleb. He simply said, You are being exalted. All this time, I thought I and my wife were taking care of Caleb. But in reality, God through Caleb had been taking care of us. God was working a miracle where I hadn't expected. He was performing a miracle on me and on my wife and on our kids and on all those coming in contact with Caleb. Having Caleb in our home was an honor and a privilege. It was also sacred. With faith, courage, hope, and trust, God will bless us, no matter how cold our life may feel. I know that God loves us. I know that God hears us and heals us. And I know that he is exalting us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Faithfully Trusting God at Times of Trial. We've just heard from Dallin R. Moody. After the break, we'll return with Blake E. Peterson for Do We Really Believe? This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Faithfully Trusting God at Times of Trial. Next is Blake E. Peterson, Chair of the BYU Department of Mathematics Education at the time of this address, titled, Do We Really Believe? Many who speak at a Brigham Young University devotional make reference to their experiences as students at BYU and the insights they gained by attending devotionals. I can't do that because I never attended BYU. I'm a Utah State University Aggie, and my Aggie blue runs deep. 
I'm a big Cougar fan, but even after 20 years of season tickets to BYU basketball and football, I still can't bring myself to sing Rise and Shout. In that same 20 years, I've also attended devotionals as a faculty member and have heard their testimonies of many of my colleagues and have felt the spirit of many students as they have borne testimony through music. I'm particularly humbled by this opportunity to speak to you today in a place where prophets and apostles have taught and testified. I'm the youngest in a family of four boys, and about 22 years ago, I was encouraged to apply for a faculty opening here at BYU in the Department of Mathematics. At the time, I was a faculty member at Oregon State University, and my three older brothers lived in Iowa, Washington, and California, while my parents lived in Logan, Utah. In addition to it being a great opportunity for me to come to BYU, it also allowed me to be a little closer to my parents because their health was failing. My father did not want my decision about moving to Utah to be based in any way on helping him and my mother. He was very proud of the fact that his sons were contributing to the kingdom outside of Utah. My wife Shauna and I felt that the move to BYU was the right decision and arrived here in August of 1996. Six months after our arrival, my father had surgery in Salt Lake City to replace a heart valve. This was the beginning of a 17-day roller coaster ride. Ten years earlier, this valve had been repaired with a pig valve, at which time he contracted hepatitis C. But because the pig valve was failing, the doctors decided to replace it with a mechanical valve. During the surgery, they realized that the hepatitis C had wreaked havoc on my father's liver, making the heart surgery very traumatic to his body. At this time, my mother's health was not good, so she was only able to visit my dad about every two to three days. Thus, the visiting of my father and communicating with doctors fell to my wife and me. One or the other of us would travel from Mapleton, about 10 miles south of Provo, to the hospital in Salt Lake every day. Many times she would spend the afternoon and I would spend the evening, or vice versa, at the hospital. This was particularly challenging because we had four children ranging in age from three to nine. I refer to this as a roller coaster because one day a particular doctor would be pessimistic and another doctor would be optimistic about the eventual outcome. These varied opinions and outlooks greatly affected my emotions as I went to visit him. I remember driving up State Street in Salt Lake City toward the hospital and feeling the dread of what I might hear from the doctors on that day and wondered to myself, am I afraid of my dad dying? I also thought to myself, I have a testimony of the atonement of Jesus Christ and of his resurrection. Am I afraid of death? Do I really believe I will see my father again? It is this question of do we really believe that will be the focus of my comments today. As I pose this question, I do not do so to introduce doubt, because when I was going through these trials associated with my father's time in the hospital, I never really doubted my testimony. Instead, I wondered why I was feeling this wide swing of emotions when I knew I did have a testimony, that the atonement of Jesus Christ would allow me to see my father again. In Moroni chapter 7, verse 41, it says, And what is it that ye shall hope for? Behold, I say unto you that ye shall have hope through the atonement of Christ and the power of his resurrection to be raised unto life eternal, and this because of your faith in him according to the promise. I believe this scripture, but this was the first time I had to directly apply it in my life. We don't truly gain a testimony of many principles of the gospel until we exercise faith and apply them in our lives. I already had a a testimony of the blessings of paying tithing 
a testimony that Joseph Smith saw God in Jesus Christ and a testimony of God's presence in the temple because I had many opportunities to test these principles and had confirming experiences about them. Facing the death of my father, however, was my first opportunity to test my faith and understanding of the resurrection. On what gospel principles is your testimony based? And are there principles or doctrines about which you ask, do I really believe? As I faced this trial, I was able to recall something that my father had told me many times growing up. Hold fast to the things that you know are true, and the answers to the rest will come to you in time. When he was a young man, he struggled to understand why worthy black male members of the church could not hold the priesthood. He went to his bishop with this question and was given these words of advice. Hold fast to the things that you know are true, and the answers to the rest will come to you in time. He heeded this counsel and often shared it with my brothers and me. For our family, June 8, 1978 was a day of celebration and a confirmation for my father that answers to the rest will come to you in time. Interestingly, I've heard this same idea shared many times in recent general conference talks. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland counseled us in April of 2013 to hold fast to what you already know and stand strong until additional knowledge comes. Later that same year, President Dieter F. Uchtdorf admonished, first doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. During a talk in October of 2014, Elder Neil L. Anderson said, we cannot discard something we know to be true because of something we do not yet understand. And similarly, Elder Kevin W. Pearson encouraged us in April of 2015 that when adversity comes, don't let something you don't fully understand unravel everything you do know. Be patient, cling to truth, understanding will come. When I was on this trying journey of driving to the hospital each day and facing the fact that my father might not recover, I held fast to the testimony that I did have in the various gospel principles, but knew that someday I would better understand the resurrection. One thing that I have come to realize is that the main contributing factor to the swing in my emotions at this time was the fear of the temporary loss of association with my father. One of the main things we enjoy about our families is spending time with them. My father never missed attending a game in which I participated as a young man. Whether it was a high school football or basketball or church basketball, he never missed a game. We also attended many Utah State University basketball games together and even had a chance to attend a jazz basketball game in the month before his surgery. I believe that one cause of my fears as I drove to the hospital was not a doubt in my testimony, but the sadness I would feel in not being able to spend time with him. After 17 days in the hospital, my father passed away, and I was forced to consider the question, do I really believe in the resurrection and atonement? The fact that I never really doubted my testimony during this trying time is consistent with my patriarchal blessing, which states that I have been blessed with the gift of faith, that gift of a believing heart. This believing heart came in part from my mother. At her funeral, my older brother Mark quoted Alma chapter 56, verse 48, which says, We do not doubt our mother knew it. All three of my brothers and I knew that there was no doubt in my mother's testimony, and we are all the beneficiaries of her gift of faith. Since all of us will be challenged at one time or another about what we really believe, I will now examine a few other places in our lives and in our testimonies where the question, do we really believe, may arise. My wife, Shauna, has listened to the radio talk show host, Dr. Lara, for many years. Dr. Lara is a marriage and family therapist who fields phone calls to help people deal with problems in their relationships. 
Perhaps some of you have listened to her show. Or maybe your parents have. Or maybe some of you have called her for advice with regard to someone you're dating right now. I've listened to this show many times while driving long distances with my wife. But because Dr. Lara is so confrontational with people, with the people who call in, it makes me uncomfortable. This discomfort is a good thing for me, however, because it helps me stay awake while driving long distances. (laughs) One of the common types of phone calls Dr. Lara receives is a husband or wife calling in to describe a behavior or problem regarding their spouse that they would like to change or fix. Dr. Lara often asks if they knew the spouse had the problem while they were dating. And the answer is usually yes. Dr. Lara then says that she can't help because the person knew the spouse's flaw before they got married and now they have to deal with it. One message I've gleaned from this counsel in these types of situations is that people can't change. I've always been bothered by this underlying message that people can't change because it seems so inconsistent with my understanding of the atonement. Do we really believe that people can change? I believe they can. Intellectually, I've known this for years, but didn't gain a strong testimony of the principle until I served as a bishop. In this ecclesiastical role, I had the opportunity to counsel with a man who was struggling with pornography and had been for many years. I also counseled with his wife about the emotions she was experiencing at this challenging time. Because he had hidden his addiction from her for so long, she didn't know if he could ever overcome this struggle. She didn't know if she could ever trust him again. As we visited one evening, the following thought came clearly to my mind. If you truly believe in the atonement of Jesus Christ, you have to believe that people can change. If you don't believe a person can change, then you don't believe in the atonement. In that moment, I was taught by the Holy Ghost for the benefit of this sister. Simultaneously, my testimony of the atonement's power to change people also increased. Let's consider another example. In my current study of the Book of Mormon, I've been reading the new student manual for Book of Mormon Institute classes. For 1 Nephi chapter 11, the manual posed the question, what principles of receiving revelation can you identify from Nephi's experience? With this question in mind, I gained some new insights as I read 1 Nephi chapter 11 verses 1 through 5, which states, For it came to pass after I had desired to know the things that my father had seen. And believing that the Lord was able to make them known unto me. As I sat pondering in my heart, I was caught away in the spirit of the Lord. Yea, into an exceedingly high mountain, which I never had before seen and upon which I never had before set my foot. And the spirit said unto me, behold, what desirest thou? And I said, I desire to behold the things which my father saw. And the spirit said unto me, believest thou that thy father saw the tree of which he has spoken? And I said, yea. Thou knowest that I believe all the words of my Father. There were two phrases in these verses that really jumped out to me. They are, believing that the Lord was able to make them known unto me in verse 1, and thou knowest that I believe all the words of my Father in verse 5. Put simply, the first phrase indicates Nephi believed that if he asked, God would answer. Maybe this seems obvious to many of you, but it jumped out to me in my recent reading Because I'm not sure I always believe God will answer when I pray. Rather, I believe he will answer, but I'm not sure I'm always going to understand or recognize that answer. I also find it significant that Nephi says he believes all the words of his father because his father was also a prophet. Nephi's general mindset was that he believed in the words of the prophet, but he wanted to understand those words better. 
To do this, he knew that he could ask God because he believed God would answer his inquiry. In a world where the beliefs of those in the great and spacious building get farther and farther away from the doctrines of the church, it becomes more and more common for the words of the prophet to be at odds with the beliefs of the world. How do we respond when those conflicts exist? Do we believe, as Nephi did, in all the words of the prophet and turn to God in prayer, believing that he will answer our honest inquiries? Or do we doubt and turn to our peers or the internet for reinforcement of the messages of the great and spacious building? It is interesting to contrast Nephi to his brothers Laman and Lamuel on this same matter of understanding their father's dream. In 1 Nephi chapter 15, Nephi returns to his father's tent after being taught by an angel and by the Spirit to find Laman and Lemuel arguing about the meaning of Lehi's dream. It is at this point that we have the following interchange in verse 8. And I said unto them, Have ye inquired of the Lord? And they said unto me, We have not. For the Lord maketh no such thing known unto us. Notice the contrast in attitude between Nephi and his brothers. He believed that God would teach him about Lehi's dream. While Laman and Lemuel said that the Lord wouldn't answer their prayers. Continuing on in verse 11, Nephi counsels, Do ye not remember the things which the Lord has said? If ye will not harden your hearts and ask me in faith, believing that ye shall receive with diligence in keeping my commandments, surely these things shall be made known unto you. Nephi reminds his brothers that if they believe, they will receive an answer. And surely these things shall be made known unto you. We see a similar contrasting attitudes between Nephi and his brothers when they return to Jerusalem to seek the place of brass. In verse 31 of 1 Nephi chapter 3, we see that Laman and Lemuel didn't believe they could get the plates when they said, Laban can slay 50, then why not us? Nephi shows his believing heart in chapter 4 when he said, God is mightier than all the earth, then why not mightier than Laban and his 50? When we pray, do we really believe that we will receive an answer? When we are prompted to do challenging things, do we really believe that we can overcome obstacles to do so? I know that I need to be more believing in these situations. What is your belief when you pray? Do you believe God will answer your prayers and that you will understand those answers? Another way to look at the question, do we really believe, is to ask yourself, can the people with whom I interact see what I believe by the way I act? When I was young, my family was very active in the church, but my parents struggled to hold family home evening or family scripture study. We did have the occasional family prayer, but it was not a regular habit. And yet my brothers and I have all served missions, have all been faithful in our testimonies, and have all served faithfully in various callings throughout our lives. I've often wondered how my parents had nurtured their son's testimonies when they didn't do the basics of family prayer, family scripture study, and family home evening. I know we've been counseled by the prophets to do these things, and I believe they have had a positive influence on my children as Shauna and I have tried to do them in our home. This is why I was puzzled at my parents' success when they didn't do these things. I've come to realize that my parents taught us the gospel by the way they lived. Although my mother's health limited the calling she held, she never let her health struggle get in the way of my father's service. When I was a teenager, my father was the bishop of our ward, but my mother was only able to attend church once or twice a month. Regardless of how she felt, she always supported my dad in his time-consuming callings, from scoutmaster to bishop to stake president. There was never any doubt of what she believed. 
Some examples of my father teaching me that he believed were seen in his day-to-day actions. First, as a home teacher of an older sister in the ward, he spent many evenings working at her home, breaking up concrete and laying forms so that she could have a new driveway. Second, as an explorer scout advisor, he organized the selling of eggs and light bulbs and candy to raise money to take the explorers to Southern California. Then again, as a deacon's quorum advisor, he got up early every Sunday morning for a few years to help one of his deacons deliver newspapers so this young man could make it to priesthood meeting on time. One final example of seeing my father's beliefs through his actions comes from my niece, Amberly, and her then-boyfriend, Jason, when they were dating and came to visit my father in the month before his surgery. Since Amberly was attending Rick's College, now known as BYU-Idaho, in Rexburg, she would often go to Logan on the weekends to visit her grandparents and had seen my father's health deteriorate. On this particular visit, she brought her boyfriend, who is now her husband. Being the boyfriend, Jason slept on the couch and witnessed my father restlessly wandering about the house all night trying to find a comfortable chair where he could sleep. This restless night preceded a Sunday morning when my father was scheduled to teach a gospel doctrine class in his ward. As Amberly and Jason watched my father walk across the church parking lot, they wondered if he would make it, because each step required such great effort and concentration. Here's the rest of the story in Amberly's own words. Quote, When it came time for his gospel doctrine lesson, he taught Alma chapter 5. I knew he was dying. He had been dying for several years. And as he sat listening to one of my favorite people in the world talk about being prepared to meet God, I was overwhelmed by the Spirit and my love for my grandpa. Personal preparation is a lifelong effort, and my grandpa was a living example of that preparation. He ended his powerful lesson by saying, I hope that when I leave this life and see God, I can say as the Apostle Paul did, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I knew what a fight he had made just to get into the building. And then he stood for 50 minutes to teach the lesson. He had fought a good fight, finished his course, and kept the faith that very day. My perspective on preparation and enduring to the end was forever changed by the faithful example of my grandpa that day. Close quote. On that day, my niece and her husband saw my father's testimony and saw what he believed by the faithful way in which he magnified his calling. I'm currently serving in a bishopric in a young single adult ward in South Provo. A few weeks ago in Elders Quorum, we were discussing Sister Bonnie Oscarson's recent general conference talk titled, Do I Believe? A member of the Quorum made the following observation. He said, if your words don't match your actions, then you don't really believe. Are your words consistent with your actions? Does your behavior testify what you really believe? Do my actions testify to my children what I believe, like my parents' actions testified to me? In April Conference 2013, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland taught us about a father who came to the Savior pleading for help with his son. In Mark chapter 9, the father described a son who was possessed of a dumb spirit and was continually doing harm to himself. The family was at the end of the rope. To the father's pleading, the Savior responds in verses 23 and 24. If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. The significance of this story for me is the way the father responded to his unbelief. He had a belief in some teaching of the Savior and was seeking help with his unbelief. 
the father was likely asking himself if he really believed his son could be healed. But rather than turning away from the gospel, he pled for help with his unbelief. All of us here have a belief in some principle of the gospel or have had a spiritual experience at some point upon which our testimony rests. Do we respond as this father did by seeking help with our unbelief? Or do we, quote, discard something we know to be true because of something we do not yet understand, close quote? So how should we respond to trials, doubts, or questions when they arise, as they certainly will? How do we respond when we are faced with questions like, do I really believe in the resurrection? Or do I really believe that people can change? Or do I really believe that God will answer my prayers? Where do we turn for answers to questions like these? Do we follow the example of this father and Elder Holland's story by remembering what we do believe and turning to the Savior to seek help with our unbelief? On the other hand, do we forget what we believe and turn to Facebook or other social media for answers to resolve our unbelief? Laman and Lemuel took the Facebook approach because they didn't believe God would answer their prayers and then murmured when understanding didn't come. Nephi turned to God, believing he would receive an answer, and understanding came. I conclude where I started by sharing an experience that happened to me several weeks after my father passed away. Sitting in an elders quorum lesson, I was asked to read Doctrine and Covenants section 138, verses 28 through 30, which states, And I wondered at the words of Peter, wherein he said that the Son of God preached unto the spirits in prison, who sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, and how it was possible for him to preach to those spirits and perform the necessary labor among them in so short a time. And as I wondered, my eyes were open and my understanding quickened, and I perceived that the Lord went not in person among the wicked and the disobedient, who had rejected the truth to teach them. But behold, from among the righteous, he organized his forces and appointed messengers clothed with power and authority and commissioned them to go forth and carry the light of the gospel to them that were in darkness, even to all the spirits of men. And thus was the gospel preached to the dead. As I read these verses in that elders quorum lesson, the spirit powerfully testified to me that my father was one of those missionaries. Sharon... Sharing the gospel in the spirit world. Do I believe in the resurrection and that I will see my father again? Yes. I followed my father's counsel, held on to what I believe, and the answer did come. When you are faced with this question of whether you really believe some principle of the gospel, I encourage you to hold fast to the things that you know are true because the answers to the rest will come to you in time. And while you're waiting for those answers to come, live the gospel in a way that allows those around you to know what you really believe. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Faithfully Trusting God at Times of Trial, with thoughts from Dallin R. Moody and Blake E. Peterson. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.